You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy in the fourth chapter. We've read through uh, both of these pastoral epistles, uh, First and 2 Timothy. Titus is the other pastoral epistle. We've read through these together as a church. I trust you remember that. Probably haven't committed to memory. Uh, but uh, So we're at the end of now his second letter to Timothy. Much, uh, much has been written about uh, instruction for Timothy, who is Paul's disciple. He has sent him to Ephesus to uh, continue the work of the to continue the church work there in Ephesus, and so he's kind of now at the end of all of these letters. He's giving sort of his final charges to Timothy, and so we're in Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through five, to launch into this sermon this morning. Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom? Preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So we've spent several weeks now going through and trying to develop a bit of a shared understanding of what the church is and what she stands for. And this is kind of coming out of a desire as we've looked at uh, amending some bylaws and just, just some discussion around who we are as a church, what we're doing, trying to formulate within us some shared vocabulary and, and hopefully a shared vision of, of what the church is supposed to be. What is the local church? Who is she? What is she to be doing? And admittedly, uh, admittedly much more could be said. I mean, we haven't talked anything about the church as the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. He is the head. Just this morning in, in 1 Peter there, we read how he is the, the chief shepherd and overseer of your souls. We'll get into it in the sermon here, but shepherd there is the word for pastor. So he's the chief pastor. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the, he really is the true pastor of his church. So he's the shepherd, he's guiding, he's directing, he's leading his church, and he is accomplishing his exact purposes in and through his church. We are his ecclesia. We are his called out ones, his gathered people for his purposes. So I've been building the argument that the church exists. We could have done more time, spent more time on this. The church exists to glorify God and that's simply because all of creation is meant 
to glorify God. And so as a result of that as well, the church uniquely is made to glorify God, to point to the value and the worth, the supremacy of God. But the church exists to glorify God through a meaningful partnership in the gospel. Remember, we've talked about this. A meaningful partnership in the gospel as it makes disciples who shine the supremacy of Christ into every corner of their lives and onto every corner of the world. That's a long sentence. I just now realizing that. We exist as a church to glorify God by making disciples who desire to spread or to shine, Philippians talked about there, to shine the supremacy of Christ into every corner of our lives and onto every corner of our worlds, of our world. The church is meant to be an active organization, an active organization. The church is going somewhere. The church is going somewhere. Jesus is doing something in us and through us, okay? Too often, churches get lulled to sleep in almost a passive existence. The church, um, it is to be an, an outpost. We are ambassadors that take up residence. We occupy until Christ's return. That's his commission there when he ascends. The, we are to occupy until he comes. But we are not just a passive occupying presence. We have a job. We have activity. We have something to do. And many times the idea of a church is just set up as a passive fort in a community that just shutters its doors and just exists as though that's somehow fulfilling who the church is or what the church should be. We, we, we are to be doing something. Christ, we are active. Christ is at work building his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this very thing after Peter's confessing, you are, you are the Christ. And, and Jesus says, you are correct. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, and we can have lots of fun debate on what the rock is. Is it Peter? Is it his confession? Is it the church that comes from Peter? The apostles, we'll talk, we could talk about that. But he says, you are, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is building his church. It is an active organization. Now, having action requires at least three things. This is not exhaustive, but as I, when Darla and I went up to Minneapolis this week to a missions conference, and as I thought about what it takes to go somewhere, I mean, it takes three things, really. It takes it takes motivation. Uh, we had to have a, a reason for going where we were going. It takes organization. We have to decide what to bring, what not to bring. You think we're going to Minneapolis? Usually pack your winter coats. No, not, we didn't need to this time. It's nice and warm in Minneapolis. Even Minneapolis is warm right now. We didn't have to pack our winter coats. Didn't have to take a bunch of that sort of issue. We didn't have to, you know, we didn't, weren't taking kids. We didn't take any pool stuff. You know, we, did, we just had our, we had organization, we had motivation where we wanted to go and what was driving us to get there. We had organization, pack these certain things, these things don't need to come, these things do need to come. And, and then we have also direction. Not only, it doesn't, it's not just motivation, it's not just organization, but there needs to be some direction. When we go down Dunning and we hit Highway 2, we have to decide, do we turn left, do we turn right? We need some direction. Which way did we turn? 
Wrong. We turned right. We had to take the kids to grandma first. <laughs> and then we turned, no, just, I, that was a dumb question. Uh, we, we had to take the kids. So, but yes, we, and then you get to the interstate. You go to Kansas City, you go to Des Moines. Well, you take it, we need direction. Okay, so it needs motivation. It needs organization. It needs direction. All three of those things need to happen. We go and we sit and we and had a great time, but all of those things are necessary for those to get somewhere, right? The church and its efforts to go somewhere needs all three of these as well. The church and its efforts to go somewhere needs these three as well. Our energy, our motivation comes purely from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that comes to us from God's word. What God is doing in the world. And when I say gospel, I mean the whole scope of creation, fall, redemption, final consummation, restoration, all that God is doing in the world and then doing it, saving sinners in the midst of it and making them a part of his project of bringing reconciliation and renewal to the world. Our energy comes from this gospel. We need also organization. We cannot include every item that the world wants to cram into our organization. We cannot be about every cause there is. We become overladen with every cause. We cannot be about every cause. We have a central cause. And that central cause comes with certain requirements, certain essentials, and then certain non-essentials, and then certain things you definitely should not take along with you on this trip. So there has to be some organization. For the church to go forward, there will be a death to many things. There are many things that we want to care about that we'll have to die to. There are many things that we'll want to prioritize that we'll have to kill off. We need motivation, we need organization, and we need direction. There are many different ways human organizations can go, but as the church of Jesus Christ, there's only one direction we can go, and it's in whatever direction Jesus leads us, in whatever way will bring glory and honor to Christ. So it brings us to this morning the question of leadership. God has given the church various gifts and roles, and all are needed and need to be empowered to operate within their gifting. One of those roles is the role of elder. That's what Timothy is in this church. We read here as Paul is talking to him, Timothy is an elder there in the church at Ephesus. Timothy's called to preach the word. He's called to rebuke and to reprove and to exhort with complete patience and teaching. So when we started this series, I said, well, you're going to talk about the local body. And I said, it's um, nature, it's mission, and it's frame. So I'm just trying to finish out this a little bit by giving the idea of the frame of the church. The nature, the mission, and its frame or structure. What is the structure of the church? How is the church put together? What's the most basic office in the church? Who is the most basic officer in the church? Pastor. Well, that's interesting. Okay. That's, that is certainly an officer. We'll get to that. 
The most basic officer in the church, the most basic office in the church is member. Member is the most basic office in the church. Oftentimes we think membership is, uh, being a member is, it is just simply a, a name on a list or whatever it may be. But member is, is really ought to be thought of as an office within the church. Your role as a member of this church, all of us here who are members, and apologize to those of you who are not members, but those who are here as members, we have a vital and important role in the church. There are no bench warmers in the church of Christ. There are no bench warmers in the church of Christ. And we often think as though that's what this goes, this is how this happens. We have our starters, we have our people that go in as subs, we have our sixth man of the year that goes out maybe, and then there's a bunch of people that just warm the bench and they watch everyone else do the work. There are no bench warmers when it comes to Christ's church. One of the downfalls of the church today, I believe, has been the lightening of the meaning of membership in Christ's church. That it becomes just a simple label, just a simple title. Honestly, the process to become a member ought to be lengthened out. And I have done that with those who have joined recently. Those who have expressed the desire to be a member, I often say, great, let's talk. Let's take six, eight months maybe a few years, let's talk about what it means to be a member of the church. Why do I do that? Am I just obstinate? Is that just me being mean? <laughs> I mean, you can make that argument. I'd entertain that. Let's have that discussion. Okay, I'm, I'm up for it. Why do that? Honestly, it's because of this reason. Don't join here if you don't mean it. Don't join a church if you don't mean it. And I'm taking that, that, that same impulse from the idea of coming to Christ. You know, we don't do altar calls here either. We don't have people walk the aisle and then immediately get baptized because there is a sense in which that revivalism that occurred uh, for many years in the American church almost makes light the call to come to Christ. Bonhoeffer wrote that in his, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, right at the beginning, Bonhoeffer writes that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. When you come to Christ, you should not take that decision lightly because what you are doing is you are putting yourself in the grave and you are being raised. That's what raised to newness of life in Christ. That's what baptism is a picture of. That you have died and the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. You are no longer your own. You are Christ. You ought to take seriously the decision to come to Jesus because it is saying all my desires, all my wants, all my wishes, all of this self that I'm trying to work so hard to serve, that now goes into the grave. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God with my body. In the same way, not exactly the same way, Going to becoming a church member does not save you, but in a similar way, there's a seriousness that comes to this role as member of a church. Jonathan Lehman is a, a writer for a group called an organization called Nine Marks, he's a pastor, I believe, in Virginia. 
But when he has his membership meetings, people he's, he's employing or interviewing new members, he usually ends with a statement like this, he says. He says, friend, by joining this church, you will become jointly responsible for whether or not this congregation continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel. This means that you will become jointly responsible both for what this church teaches as well as whether or not its members' lives remain faithful. And one day you will stand before God and give an account for how you fulfilled this responsibility as pastor, as elder, as deacon, no, as member of a local church. We need, he, that was, that was, he didn't say that, I said that. Back to the quote. He says, we need more hands for the harvest, so we hope that you'll join us in that work. Membership in Christ's church means something. It means something. It means something. At our missions conference, I can't share names and I can't share geographies, which always annoys me. People say that, but it's kind of true as well. We met a, a, a girl, 25, I'd say maybe or so, maybe getting close to 30, and has just gone through a program uh, nine months uh, at a location and is now raising funds to go to a Central Asian nation. Uh, she can't say the name of the place, it's closed country, fairly closed, it was a restricted country. Um, but one of the stands, so thank Afghanistan, uh, Tajikistan, I can't see say it up here, Pakistan, uh, uh, Uzbekistan, thank the stands, okay? She and a group of eight other adults, nine total adults, and eight total children, 17 people, raising funds, hope to in January, go to this, one of these nations, spend three years learning the local language. They don't know the language at all. They get a student visa and they go and are able to be enrolled in the country because they're learning the language. They'll spend two to three years learning the trade language, what they kind of do business in, what they talk shop, how you go to the market, the market language, and then also a distinct dialect of another, of the specific people group. There's 39 people groups in, like in, 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 in one of these countries, there's 39 people groups in this one country. They'll learn these different dialects and then spend hopefully about at three years there of learning language. They've developed a business so that they can stay for a few more years under a visa and, and continue to witness. And then the hopes, well, we, we, uh, one of the missionaries there had gone to Papua New Guinea with a, a, a people group and spent 20 years uh, in Papua New Guinea learning the language, becoming part of the tribe to plant a church there. This young girl, these individuals, these nine, uh, the nine, fan, nine individuals, these eight kids, what was unique about them? They're members of a local church. They're, they're members of Christ's church. They, don't, they, aren't, they aren't pastors, they aren't elders, they aren't deacons. They are people that see that when Christ calls me, my life is not mine. I am his. I am his. 
And so membership therefore matters. Don't discount the importance of what it means when this is your church. So member is the most basic uh, office in the church. We also have another office called deacons and deaconesses, right? Now, deacons in Acts chapter 6, where that kind of comes to play, Stephen and the seven are chosen to kind of as the first deacons. It basically, the Greek word there is diakonos. It just means a servant, one who serves. And we know from Romans chapter 16, Phoebe is seen as a deaconess in Christ's church. There's gendered language there. The men are deacons. The women are deaconesses. And what they do is they serve the body of Christ. What was going wrong in Acts chapter 6, you can read it, but that the apostles needed to be devoted to the preaching, teaching of the word and the prayers. And there was just a lot of felt needs in the community. And so deacons and deaconesses, people who had full of the spirit, meaningful members, cared about Christ's church, went about and served. They became deacons or deaconesses. Now we have elders. Now, right now in the church, we have, in this body, we have elders, okay? And when I came on, that, that role basically meant that you, um, you, lead, you get up and you say the greeting in the morning of the Sunday service. And I don't think there's any dispute on that. That's what I was told. If you want to be an elder, all you have to do is give the greeting on a Sunday morning. You have to, you have to open up the service and then you have to serve communion uh, when it becomes communion time. But thanks to COVID, that's now, that doesn't exist anymore. But that was what it meant to be an elder. So that's, that's kind of, that's now the elders basically operate more as just kind of a lead team for me. I run ideas by a certain group of people. There's six now. And we go through certain ideas, try to workshop them to roll out suggestions to the board. Interestingly, the, the scripture gives, I think, three different words for this role of elder. The first one is the role, is the word poimen, which means shepherd. It's the word we read there in 1 Peter. Because literally in Ephesians chapter 4, the fivefold ministry, one of them is shepherd or pastor. The Latin there, do you want to know the etymology of it? It's fascinating. I know you do. The Latin there is pastor, which is where we get the word pastor. It just basically means one who keeps sheep. Like oftentimes, you read the Gospels and it talks about shepherds when it's referring to the people who keep the sheep, like the actual shepherds there of the Christmas story, that's pastor, that, that's pastor, shepherds. And so there's a, the word, when you use the word pastor, you're actually call, you're, you're talking about a shepherd, someone who watches over the sheep. So that's one word that's often used for shepherd, for, for his pastor, the, new, the, new, the King James translates that as pastor. The other another word is presbyteros, which is often transferred or translated as elder. Now that's in 1 Timothy 5:9, Titus 1:5 is this word presbyteros, from which you know the whole denomination of Presbyterian kind of gets its name. And then there is the there's this word episkopos, which means overseer or bishop, and that's Titus 1:7. All of those words essentially are describing the office of an elder. All of those words are essentially describing the office of elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop, overseer of your soul. 
With exception, there's a distinct uh, when they have the fivefold ministry, but we won't go into that. So the qualifications for such leaders, they're found in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3. So I invite you to get your Bible out. Don't take Darren's word for this. Look in your Bible. What does it say? 1 Timothy chapter 3, we can see uh, there's overseers. That's, this, that's that episkopos, that is this elder, overseer. And then you see below there is deacons. So the qualification there for an overseer, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Nothing wrong with wanting to be an elder. Therefore, an overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, this overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into condem the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Biblically, there are very important things to see here. One of the first one and the, most, the biggest hot button issue, the office of elder biblically is one reserved for the husband of one wife. Biblically, the office of elder is reserved for men. The elders are to be a husband of one wife. They are to be dedicated men though as well. We see that they are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. There are lots of character qualifications for what this role of elder must be. He must be gentle and on and on. He must be able to manage his household well. Why does it say that? Why does it matter if he manages his household well? Because this elder, this, this pastor, this shepherd, this overseer is meant to give the church direction. If he can't give his own household direction, how in the world can he be expected to give the church direction? And so this, this man, this qualified man, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach, not quarrelsome, must be able to keep control of his house, run his household well, because the church needs direction. The church needs direction. And as an elder, overseer, shepherd, this person is called upon to lead the church, to give direction and to lead it. Takes us back to our opening of 2 Timothy chapter 4, the passage we started with. This elder, this overseer, or a plurality of elders, you see the pattern in Acts, is actually not of a single pastor model. It actually is of a team of elders run, uh, governing and leading the church. 2 Timothy 4, where we started, this overseer, this elder, is to preach the word, being ready in season and out of season. Doing what? Reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching. There is direction to be given. And God, the church needs this direction. And God has gifted and called specific individuals for the job. The local church, under the direction and guidance of Scripture, is to recognize and empower such individuals. Now... Where a lot of the pushback I get on this, besides the gender stuff, 
a lot of the pushback that I get on this is because we live in such a polarized world. We live in such a polarized world. Everything is either boiling hot or ice cubes. There's no middle ground ever when it comes to, well, basically anything. Politics, uh, you know, you, you talk about, I don't want to go down that road. Uh, you talk, but it, it becomes, has become so central in our conversation, in our community, that it just, it's either white hot or ice cold. And that's all you can be. There, we just live in these extremes. Our world today only sees things at polar opposite positions. And so often, when you start talking about leadership in the church, when you start talking about giving direction, guidance, and leading, people jump to an extreme. Leadership within the church doesn't have to be either totally oppressive and controlling and manipulative, and it doesn't have to be apathetically absent either. It doesn't have to be polar opposite ends. So often what, we, what you hear, what the, the, the concern is that we're, we, leadership is going to run to one of these extremes. Scripture does command the role of an elder in the church to take stands for truth, to rebuke, to repute, repro- reprove, to exhort. It means give direction to say, hey, this is the way to go. Scripture commands the role of an elder to take stands for truth. Being under authority, now, one good thing about this reality is that being under the authority of Scripture, remember we did that two or three weeks ago? About the Scripture, Bible, tells us what, who we are and what we do. Being under the authority of Scripture, while it obligates an elder, a leader, to say this is the direction we must go, it also protects the congregation from the elders saying all kinds of things they should do and ways they should go that are outside of Scripture. The Bible, at the same time, while it gives us direction of the way we should live, it also limits us. We cannot do things, we cannot obligate or command things outside of Scripture. The, the two polar opposites we have, we have, here's my illustration. We have beanbag leaders and we have electric chair leaders. I should have, that was doing that way. We have electric chair leaders and we have beanbag leaders. Those are the two polar opposites we think we end up with. The beanbag leader is the one, no matter how you sit, it's going to feel great. We're not going to change a thing. Don't worry. You can lay upside down. You can stand on this thing. You can sit on your head. You can do whatever, whatever way. You can lay underneath it and lay it on top of you. Whatever you want with a beanbag, you can do. It just doesn't matter. It's an amorphous blob. Don't worry about it. That's one view. Now, that is not giving any direction to the church. That's just being a bump on a log. But the other extreme we go to is the electric chair pastor, the guy who is evidently micromanaging and criticizing and and going through every detail of life. And if you move so much as an arm the wrong way, you're going to get blasted. Those are the polar, and we both like, we, we, we go between these two extremes. Is it possible that God has wired the church, given us his word in such a way that there can be leadership that actually is just a really good, reliable chair? Could there be a leader who actually is just under the authority of the scripture, involved in the local church, caring for one another? Can there be leaders that, yes, give direction, that, yes, give rebuke, that, yes, say this is not the way things should go, but at the same time, be giving it under the authority of Scripture and giving the church a healthy way forward. This is the way God has wired the church. So what about us? What do we want here at this church? 
Well, I think it's interesting. Why is Paul having to say this to them? I mean, he says here in verse 3, Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He, he says, I mean, what, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> you can look back in 1 Timothy 3, or 2 Timothy 3, he says, In the last days there'll come times of difficulty. This is verse 2. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Boy, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough language when you're talking about describing certain people. These are the same, same group of people. I mean, the same influences coming around the people who are accumulating for themselves teachers that will suit their own passion. What's wrong with these people? They must have been some special class of bad guy. No. Sadly, you know what they were? Just fallen people like all the rest of us. Fallen people like all the rest of us. They were just regular fallen people. People just like you and just like me, apart from the grace of God. That old man still tries to resurrect himself inside of each one of us all the time. In what ways do we fight the word of God? Maybe an easier question is, in what ways are we fighting our own inclinations Fighting In what ways, if you're not fighting the word of God, okay, in what ways in your life are you fighting your own inclinations that run counter to God's word? Where you're saying to yourself, I really want this. I really want to do this. I really want to react this way. I really want to live this way. But no, it's contrary to God's word. In what ways are you fighting your own inclinations that run counter to the will of God in scripture? If, if those don't exist, is that because you've been made perfect? Maybe you're so refined, you no longer have anything to, to any more sin to be convicted of. You're running so well if there's none of them. More likely, what's happened is you, are, you have become blind to the sin, to the ways that your ears are wanting to only hear the things that suit your own passions. And so the, what needs to happen, God needs to do this work in our hearts. What change is God working on in you? What sin are you being called to put to death? What sin are you mortifying? What can we do in the midst of all of this? We return to the fuel for the whole endeavor. The grace and the mercy of God shown in the gospel of God in the giving of Jesus Christ for sinners. Are we fighting against the supremacy of Christ and his efforts to shine into every corner of our lives. You know, and actually, I think a better question is where are you fighting that? It's in all of us. This, this residual sin, this old man we're constantly seeking to kill. Where is the supremacy of Christ struggling to break into our lives? And then seeing that, won't we turn? Won't we turn from that and turn to Christ? To treasure Christ and him above all else, he will not fail his people. He will not abandon you. The Spirit will point out in your heart the places that need Christ to rule, and he will empower you to do so, fueled by the great work of his love on the cross to provide forgiveness for our rebellion. Let us turn from our selfish desires and impulses and treasure Christ and his mercy and grace today.
Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room this morning, God, we, we have not arrived. One day, when you return or when we die and we go to be with you in heaven, we will know what it is like to be sin-free. And what a great day that will be. But today is not that day. Right now is not that day. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us unusual clarity in our own hearts. God, where am I seeking a, a voice or an affirmation that just suits my own passions and my own desires? Where, where have I and where am I? Where are we doing that in rebellion against what you have spoken in the direction that you are giving your church and your people and your word. Father, we want to face that because right now we're, we're getting ready to come to communion. And the whole point of this service, this ordinance, is the remembrance that that sin that we committed, those sins we commit, we can't overcome. We need alien help. We need outside help. We need a righteousness that is not our own. So, Father, we want to come to communion this morning confessing the areas where we have pursued our own desires and not you. We want to confess them and look to Christ that we might have forgiveness, that we might, God, then be made new, refreshed, restored in our salvation and walk out of these doors lightened to live lives that glorify and honor you. Pray these things in